Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Are Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season two, episode two. Today, we're going to be discussing all things cervical spine. Mike, let's start off with evaluation. Let's talk about the different categories and subgroups of how we classify patients and how that helps guide and streamline treatment. Yeah, so I think that just kind of makes your your diagnosing and, and treating a little bit easier whenever you can kind of break things down into categories. So kind of initially discussed about by an article by Fritz and their group broke it down in, into five different categories, uh, those being mobility, centralization, pain control, exercise and conditioning, and then a like headache group. And then shortly after that, the JOSPT uh, neck pain guidelines came out and they lessened it to four categories, those being mobility deficits, neck pain with movement and coordination impairments, and they kind of lumped whiplash into that category, neck pain with headaches, uh, and neck pain with radiating pain. So your kind of standard radiculopathy. So figuring out ways to kind of break them into those categories, probably where I start during my evaluation. And then obviously if one is present with another, you know, you have two, three of these things, uh, then just kind of going after your most prevalent one first and then just kind of breaking it down from there. Yeah, I agree. You kind of hit on a point that I wanted to touch on. That is more of like an onion approach as far as like peeling back the different layers and addressing the different deficits. I don't think these exist in isolation. So that was a good point to make there at the end. Yeah, the Fritz article, I think is a good place to start. Then you can start to pick out more definitive sub patterns and subgroups from there. So I think for all our listeners, I think if you haven't read the Fritz article, it is a nice place to start as far as just being able to group patients and streamline your treatment. Let's talk about the mobility patterns. So these are going to be your mobility classification. These are going to be those individuals that wake up, there's like a kink in their neck, or they might have slept wrong or done something wrong, and you just notice some mobility deficits. Or it could just be someone that has the other pieces of the puzzle as well, and mobility is just one component. And same thing for the mobility patterns. The ones that we're going to discuss are going to be more the isolated patterns, but remember, these can they can exist together, and you may have multiple, which makes the picture a little bit more murkier. But we'll talk about the uh, simplified version of the patterns and the reasoning behind them. So the first pattern is going to be your lanoccipital joint, your AO. It has very little rotation, so you're going to see mainly restrictions and extension and same side side bending. There is some evidence to suggest that TMJ can be related to deficits in mobility with the AO joint. So that's just something to consider if you're managing a TMJ patient. Don't forget to clear the upper cervical spine and look at that AO. Moving on to the atlanoaxial joint, this is going to be same side rotation with opposite side bending restriction. I typically see this with like upper trap myofascial pain, tend to have a restriction with your side bending rotation test. And then also you isolate this joint by doing full flexion and then rotation. The full flexion just locks out the mid cervical joints and allows you to isolate more of that upper cervical rotation. So if somebody has like that myofascial upper trap pain, this is going to be completely anecdotal. I have seen individuals get relief with a thrust mobilization to the AA. And if I had to come up with some clinical reasoning as to why that is, my best guess would be that along with the spinal accessory nerve, your upper trap does get contributions from C234. That thrust mobilization creates some type of like descending inhibitory effect. That would be the only connection that I could make between that joint and that muscle. But I have seen patients get some relief from a thrust mobilization to address a restriction at the joint and some myofascial pain at the upper trap. And then the final mobility pattern is going to be your mid-cervical, and you could have a closing or an opening. 
your closing is going to involve same side extension, same side side bending, same side rotation. So just imagine you're closing down on that segment. And then your opening pattern is going to be flexion, opposite side bending, opposite rotation. Having trouble open that segment since it's your mid cervical spine, side bending and rotation are heavily coupled here. And you're going to have deficits in all three planes of motion. Mike, do you typically use thrust mobilization in practice? Do you uh, encounter a lot of mid-cervical hypomobility, AA hypomobility? What, what do you typically see? I use thrust a little bit. Um, my thrust mobilizations aren't like my strength in practice, I'd say. But I do some like mid-cervical stuff. It's probably where I tend to use it the most. Uh, I tend to go for mid-cervical, kind of make them feel good. And then most of my upper cervical stuff will be kind of your standard, you know, grade two through four kind of targeted mobilization. I don't think there's much to suggest that there's a huge difference. Maybe you know know some uh, different stuff that I don't between your kind of targeted lower grade mobilizations, you know, your kind of grade one through four stuff versus your grade five as, as long as it's a targeted intervention. Right. Yeah. So there is an article that suggests that uh, lower grade mobilization versus thrust mobilization is equivocal. So there's really no additional benefit to the thrust as far as pain modulation, mobility, uh, short term and long term outcomes. But the only caveat to that is with cervicogenic headache, there is a study to suggest that thrust mobilization to the upper cervical spine, that's your AO, your AA joint does have benefit to your lower grade mobilization. I feel like when we're talking about thrust mobilization, we definitely have to talk about all the hype in the media as far as patients getting strokes and the risk with cervical spine manipulation. I think it's a matter of wrong place, wrong time. I think a lot of clinicians, especially when they're chiropractors and they're doing a high volume of thrust mobilizations, if they're not diligent and aren't screening for red flags every single visit and kind of going through that patient history, if they're missing any type of diplopia, which is double vision, any balance deficits that they may notice when the patient walks into the clinic, these type of red flags are going to guide you to a kind of storm that's already brewing. And if you decide to manipulate this patient and they happen to have a stroke the next day, then you could end up in a really bad situation. But I do the high risk screen less because it's going to give me some great information for treatment, but more because I just want to protect myself to say that I screen the structures with the highest quality of testing that we have available with just our hands. So usually my high risk screen is composed of the sharp purser test, which is screening your transverse ligament, your C2 kick, which is looking at your ALAR ligament, shear testing, looking for C1 instability, and then your VBI testing, your vertebral basilar insufficiency. And the VBI test is probably the least reliable and accurate of all of them, but it's just the best we have. And it's kind of doing your due diligence to make sure that you're doing what you can to screen patients appropriately so that you feel comfortable, they feel comfortable participating in that specific intervention. As far as suspecting an actual transverse ligament or C1 instability involvement, a lot of these get missed because the x-rays that are provided when someone has a motor vehicle accident may not be the appropriate views. So what you want to ask your patients if you believe that they have a C1 instability is whether they've had flexion or extension stress x-rays from a lateral view. And what you're looking for on these x-rays is an atlantodental interval of greater than three centimeters. So this is going to be the space between the anterior portion of the atlas and the dens. So during these flexion or extension x-rays, if that space increases greater than three centimeters, that's going to suggest that that transverse ligament isn't helping the dens adhere to the atlas. And that could suggest a potential tear or uh, instability at C1. 
And then if you're suspecting a fracture at the base of the odontoid, you're going to want to do an open mouth x-ray. So these are very different views in your traditional x-rays that you might get. And if you really feel strongly that these are occurring in your patient, I would suggest sending them back and recommending they perform these views. And then if you suspect the vertebral basilar arteries involved, it's not costly testing. You just send them back, recommend they get a Doppler to look for vascular insufficiency. And again, these are really uncommon. I have had a few funky testing, but not anything that's prevented me from treating a patient. What about you, Mike? Have you encountered anything kind of wonky out there? No, nothing too, too wonky. From time to time, I think I've had maybe two or three where like my like kick test just like isn't really kicking the way that I want to, but it's more of like that kind of like, it was like, like a delayed kick or just doesn't kick quite the same as the other side. But most of the time, unless that's kind of coupled with other things, you know, the, the, the most I do there is let their physician know. But other than that, like, I don't think that's necessarily going to completely change my treatment unless they're having like other significant symptoms kind of coupled with it. Right. And then let's move to the headache classification. I feel like this classification really is the one that's going to be the most concomitant with another classification. I think it rarely exists in isolation. If you have cervicogenic headaches, you're likely going to have some postural involvement, which we'll discuss in a little bit. And then you're also going to have some muscle endurance deficits, some motor coordination deficits, postural awareness deficits. So Mike, what do you typically do for cervicogenic headaches? And talk us through what your game plan would be. The biggest thing is is with these people, I seem to have pretty good results with like hands-on treatment. And so really trying to figure out a way to kind of get their symptoms less. And then once I kind of figure out what seems to be the kind of moneymaker for them or or which exercises seem to help or which hands-on techniques seem to help, I teach them kind of self kind of headache reduction techniques for home. So some of the kind of hands-on things that I like to try are just like a simple suboccipital release and then kind of taking them into almost that like suboccipital nod where it's just kind of like a simple A to P glide with like your chest on their forehead and kind of in like that little bit of kind of that kind of suboccipital nod there and mobilize that AO joint, maybe get some suboccipital stretch, whatever it is. Then from there, uh, I'll tend to look at like a flexion rotation test. So take them into full flexion. You talked about way to kind of isolate that AA joint as much as possible, kind of take them into full flexion. Then rotate side to side. If there's a different side to side, I think in the studies it's up 10 degrees or more. But if I see a kind of difference that I can pick out on with with my eyes, I'll I'll tend to go after that and I'll target that with like kind of like your seated kind of like open jar technique from there. Kind of go and, and break down. I'll, I'll give them like a self stretch if they seem to get relief with uh, some of the suboccipital work. I'll give them a like snag if they seem to get more relief from the rotation. And if they get re- relief from both, then I'll do both. Yeah. And uh, if anyone's not familiar with that jar technique, it's essentially a mobilization with movement. You're applying kind of like a posterior to anterior direction of force to the transverse process and facilitating that that joint motion while their head is kind of resting against your chest and you're facilitating rotation in the direction that has the impairment. So it's kind of like a mulligan mobilization with movement. And then they can kind of do it to themselves to an extent using that snag that that you were alluding to, Mike, as far as how around their neck to facilitate that joint motion during rotation. Yeah, I use definitely all of those. I think the headache classification kind of falls in with postural impairments. Typically, what I'll see with these individuals are a lot of desk workers. You've got your forward head, rounded shoulders. So when you have that forward head, you're going to have a lot of upper cervical extension and mid cervical flexion. So what this means is when you have that upper cervical extension, 
those suboccipital muscles are going to be really short and they're going to remain in that shortened position. And then in addition, you're going to have that skull compressing on that upper cervical spine. It's just kind of sitting on there creating a lot of pressure. Now your greater occipital nerve is going to create pain through the C2 distribution, which runs along that posterior aspect of the scalp, kind of in that ram's horn direction. So again, if those suboccipital muscles are sitting in a shortened position, that's where you're going to get the relief from the suboccipital release. Once we get through the mobilization aspect of it, whenever you have kind of a compression syndrome where you've got a consistent static overload, that's typically when you're going to develop those joint mobility deficits. So once I've addressed the joint mobility deficits, I've got some pain modulation with the soft tissue work. I tend to go into some postural exercises, and this is going to be a kind of a common theme for a lot of what we talk about with some of the exercise prescription here. The main one that I like to do is a chin tuck, and these are performed almost for every neck patient across the U.S. from, from what I've seen. But what I have also noticed is a lot of variability in how they're prescribed. So I usually like to call my chin tuck rather than a chin tuck, I call it craniocervical flexion. And that's just pretty much what it is. It's a fancy name, but I feel like it helps remove that confusion. I've seen a lot of chin tucks prescribed, but then I see what's actually occurring is cervical retraction. So you don't want cervical retraction almost in a sagittal plane. What you want is a head on neck nodding. You want craniocervical flexion. You want your skull to be nodding on your C1. And what this does is it's going to create upper cervical flexion and it's going to create a stretch through that suboccipital musculature. And I usually don't say go all the way to the barrier. You can go pretty far and kind of hit like a bony block. I say almost hit like 75%. It should feel almost empty and like you're doing nothing. So I think that's a good bridge to get into our whiplash category because we are going to talk a little bit more about chin tucks and compensatory stat strategies from the SCM. And I feel like the SCM is usually involved in whiplash. So Mike, talk to us about whiplash, what you typically see, what you typically do. I know this is really a hodgepodge term. Yeah. So I work mostly with youth sports. So most of the whiplash that I see is related to concussion. So a lot of my assessment is seeing if any of their symptoms that seem to be from concussion are coming from the cervical spine. So my my screen for that within the setting that I'm currently in now is just a simple uh, range of motion screen and looking to see if any of their cervical spine motions create any of their familiar symptoms, whether that be dizziness, headache, nauseousness, whatever it might be. So I, I have to kind of screen out the whole you know, vestibular side of things as well. So I'll do, instead of rotating their head side to side, doing like a VOR, I'll have them sit on like a, a stool that can rotate and I'll stabilize their head and I'll have them rotate their body underneath of their head. That reproduces their symptoms. We've taken out the VOR so we can theoretically assume that they're getting some some of those symptoms from their cervical spine. And there's one or two other things I'll do, but a, another, I think, big one is going to be to look at just their general deep neck flexor endurance. That's pretty commonly impaired in those with whiplash. And so the simple test that I do for that is just lay them supine on the table, kind of put them into that kind of craniocervical flexion that you kind of talked about. I think it was studied with uh, about two fingers underneath of the patient's skull. And you essentially just kind of slide your fingers back and forth underneath of their skull as they kind of maintain that gentle chin tuck and you're looking for them to be able to kind of maintain like like a static hold there for about 40 seconds roughly give or take as i think normal there are some things that you can look at with some lasers and kind of joint proprioception within the cervical spine have patients rotate their head from side to side try and look forward and see how close they are to a set center point 
That's a good point. Your your suboccipital musculature does have a high density of muscle spindles. So that is going to be involved in cervical proprioception. And a decrease in that is going to create that sensation of cervical genic dizziness. Going off what you were saying about concussion, I think we talked about this on our concussion episode from season one. I screen vestibular issues with most motor vehicle accident patients just because I feel like their concussions really go undiagnosed or they aren't really on the forefront of the attention for their plan of care. So usually what what I do is I really screen the vestibular stuff. I'm looking for concussion, photophobia, phonophobia, sensitivity to light or sound. And the reason is, is there's a lot of good evidence that patients who don't have their concussions addressed as a part of their comprehensive orthopedic treatment actually have delayed recovery and poor outcomes. So you really want to get to that concussion early, address it early, and this is going to help improve your probability of outcome, not only from a concussion standpoint, but from a orthopedic standpoint for their neck. The next point that I wanted to get into, Mike, and I'm really interested to hear your opinion on, is I had an instructor who was really big on motor control and muscle activation, and I don't think that she was so far on the side of like, you have to isolate your TA or isolate your deep neck flexors, but more it was just to improve the recruitment of the musculature early on, at least while it was inhibited from that initial trauma or pain process. So something she would do fairly often is while patients would be doing their chin tuck, she would palpate their SEM and she would almost coach them to go very gentle, very slow, prevent any SEM overactivation. So one thing that I am usually concerned about is looking at, are they overactivating that SCM when doing their chin tuck? So your SCM is going to be one of those superficial neck flexors or, or neck muscles, and the chin tucks are going to be your deep neck flexor. So I do see a lot of compensatory overactivation of the SCM when trying to do a chin tuck. Is that something that you look at during the muscle endurance testing or during the exercise prescription? Or, or what are your thoughts on it? Any experience with it? Like if it looks like they're getting into like you kind of alluded to that like true like craniocervical flexion and they're able to kind of hold that position and it looks good and they're not calling on everything else. If they call on their SCM a little bit, I'm not overly concerned about it because if they're getting into that craniocervical flexion, they're still calling on the like deep neck flexors that 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 we want to get after. And so I think it's 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 definitely something that I will look at, but I'm more looking at can they get into the motion? If they're having a hard time getting into that position, then I might palpate and say, you know, feel how hard these muscles are here on the side. We want to try and get them to kind of calm down a little bit. That's why I want this motion to be real little. I think that kind of ties back into, you know, there's a lot of almost like negative like media of help trying to isolate your TA and, and all of that stuff. So I think there there's definitely a place for it. A lot of these people come into us in like high levels of pain and there's only so much that they can do. So just laying them on the table and having them work on some some simple exercises and wake up some muscles that we kind of know tend to sh- shut down a little bit whenever you're injured, I think is, is a decent starting place. I don't think it's appropriate with everyone, but I think there's definitely a little subset where it, it's nice to give them something to do where they're, where they're waking up muscles that, that we know are essentially shut down and then use that as kind of building blocks for future exercises. Definitely. And you hit some good points that kind of sparked some thoughts for me. And it's kind of going back to what we set up in season one. And that's talking about a phase-based approach. So I feel like a lot of clinicians are either in there, they, they tend to camp in one of the absolutes. They either say isolating your TA is not appropriate because you're going to recruit all of your musculature during functional activity. Therefore, you should never try to isolate your TA. And then you've got the other group that says, you know, you've got to isolate that TA because that's, you know, what's inhibited. And if you don't isolate that TA, it'll never fire, but then they never get to that functional global core strengthening. So I don't 
think we should live in either camp. I think, like you said, each approach has its place with certain patients. I think just because you isolate, let's say, deep neck flexors or, or just focus on SEM over-involvement early on while they're in high pain, doesn't mean that that's what you're going to focus on in three weeks. In three weeks, one that, once that pain's down, the deep neck flexors are firing. You don't feel like they have to compensate with that SEM. As they get into higher level movements and somebody's planking in a gravity-dependent position and they're engaging that chin tuck, more than likely the demands of that activity are going to require their SEM to also be involved. It's going to be normal. But I think the thing to understand for a lot of clinicians is, and I'll compare it to the knee. You have someone that has a knee surgery, they have arthrogenic inhibition of their quad. You do quad sets at the beginning to get their quadricep firing. That's a neuromuscular recruitment component there. As they get later into their rehab, you ditch the quad sets and you get more into your functional movements, you know, your squatting, your knee extension, whatever it might be to strengthen. So I think if we look at other body parts in the same sense, you want to think about neuromuscular activation in the pain modulation phase or muscle activation motor unit recruitment to address the arthrogenic inhibition. That's inhibition of the muscle surrounding a joint due to a pain process. And then as you progress to phase two, then you start your strengthening, which again, all of these categories that we're discussing are in theory in your phase one, your pain modulation phase. So you want to remember that all these classifications are to help get your patients out of pain. Once they're out of pain, that phase two is very ambiguous. It's just general exercise. There's not a lot of good evidence for what specific exercises are the best. So once you get out of that pain modulation, it's kind of free reign using your clinical reasoning because as long as you can defend what you're doing, you're, you're good to go. But I feel like that's a very important discussion to have just because I feel like there's always people in either camp and I think both camps are right. I think there's a strengthening phase in phase two and then I think there's a neuromuscular recruitment phase in phase one that should also be incorporated. So moving on to our next category, and that's going to be neck pain with radiating arm pain. So this is going to be some potential disc involvement and or neural tension. So let's talk about just disc involvement with what's going to be like your cervical radiculopathies. Talk to me a little bit about what your treatment, what your approach is for the pain modulation to get them out of this phase one. Yeah. So uh, within the, the cervical spine, I think it, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I think the, the radicular stuff tends to be a little bit less disc and a little bit more of nerve root impingement versus like in, in, in like the low back, your nucleus stays a little bit more jelly-like per se, uh, a little bit later in life. In the neck, I think it becomes more fibrous a little bit earlier, like 20s to 30s or whatever it is. So, so most of the time, these people that we see are a little bit older. Yeah. Um, so I'm more, more likely looking at like a, kind of like a, a nerve root impingement type syndrome, which is why they seem to do pretty well with kind of that cervical retraction. That's at least in theory. I'm not sure exactly. That's a good point. That That is true that the uh, disc does become more fibrous. And I, it, you're right. It's a misnomer to say disc involvement. I would say it's more of a nerve root impingement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that tends to be, as far as like my evaluation for that, just looking and seeing if it does seem to be more of like a dermatomal distribution versus something more, more global. Is it kind of that more like nervy type pain or is it more just kind of like the hand gets cold or more like pins and needly type feeling, which might lead me to think something more, a little bit more vascular uh, versus like purely nerve. And so then just looking to see if you can find any sort of kind of positions or movements that get them to centralize, just like we do in, in the low back. And the neck tends not to be extension like it is in the low back. That's generally going to peripheralize them in these people. So more, you're more looking at kind of that like retracted position maybe maybe some traction potentially flexion potentially side bending away those tend to be kind of 
where I start, I'll, I'll let you kind of expand upon that a little bit more. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, retraction is like the extension of the neck. I think retraction is the first one that they typically respond to as far as decreasing radiating symptoms. And I think as far as trying to tease out like nerve root impingement versus neural tension, you really have to have that major fit in a lot of the categories. I think a lot of neural tension gets chased down as a nerve root impingement. And I think a lot of people just hear radiating pain, they automatically attribute it to that nerve root impingement. And I usually look for reflex changes, myotomal weakness, positive compression, positive spurlings. Now they don't need all of those, but if they only have the sensory deficits without any of the other indicators of a nerve root involvement, I really start to look more towards neural tension. They really need some other signs to indicate that if their reflexes are normal, their strength's normal, then I'll probably start to look toward that neural tension side. And we'll talk in a little bit about what we look for when, when we suspect it's neural tension. But as far as a disc, I see most individuals respond positively to retraction. And then in second place, probably rotation and flexion. Usually yeah. you can do like a quadrant type test where they might like flex and rotate to one direction. You're really just trying to like maximally open the side that um, you suspect the nerve root involvement's occurring. So I usually try to look for some type of quote unquote directional preference and couple that with manual or mechanical traction. The one thing I do want to discuss with traction is some clinicians might do traction, not get the desired result and kind of give up on it. If you're really confident that it's a nerve root involvement, then you want to play with your angles of flexion. Just because when you have a higher angle of flexion, you're going to be targeting the lower cervical spine. And then when you have a lower angle of flexion, you're going to be targeting the upper cervical spine. Now, this is important because if you suspect that it's a C6 and you have a very low flexion angle, you may not be creating the traction necessary at that segment to get the relief. So just something to consider if you're fairly confident in your diagnoses, but you're not getting the results you expect with your interventions. Yeah, that's a good point. And then again, that's for pain modulation. So what I usually do is a hodgepodge of retraction, you know, directional preference exercise, some manual or mechanical traction. And then I start to incorporate those like neuromuscular activation exercises rather than strengthening in that early pain modulation phase. And then once I've gotten their pain centralized, their pain decreased, then I progress that to more of like a comprehensive global and functional strengthening approach. Would you say that's about the same for you, Mike? Is that technically or typically what you? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the same. I think sometimes I'll, if they, if I think that there's a significant uh, postural component to it, I'll tend to work in just a few simple postural type exercises, maybe even potentially along with, you know, some kind of seated retractions or, or things along those lines. Um, but yeah, potentially working in a little bit of posture and then the same stuff that you talked about. Right. And then let's talk about neural tension and thoracic outlet. I think this is one of the diagnoses that I have like the biggest beef with. It's going to be like my own personal vendetta, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think it's overdiagnosed. I think a lot of people have that paresthesia somewhere in their upper limb. They don't really have any indicators that suggest thoracic outlet, but they get the diagnosis. Uh, maybe they do some of the special tests, but again, some of those are going to put the nerves in tension positions. So you could just be recreating nerve tension. So this diagnosis just really irks me because the actual true prevalence is about 3% in upper limb conditions. It's really low, but I got to say that I see that diagnosis way more than 3% of my, my upper limb and cervical spine population. And 
I really feel like in the absence of like a cervical rib or some type of like pathoanatomic abnormality, I really, really want to go through my checklist of neural tension, postural deficits that we'll discuss here in a second, make sure that that it's not a neural tension component, because I just feel like neural tension is not something on the radar of a lot of physicians. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think thoracic outlet for me tends to be something that I I've seen it a few times more more as like a vascular right issue. And that's that, that's dead obvious when it's vascular because it's a very different presentation. Yeah, but you're like neurogenic thoracic outlet. I don't think I've ever seen one in clinic. Right. So yeah. And then as far as neural tension, we're going to get a little bit more into theory, and this is completely anecdotal from from experience, just because I feel like from a biomechanical perspective. There's not a lot of research on neural tension. I mean, there is good research to suggest that there's changes at the median nerve and chronic shoulder pain, that the actual mechanosensitivity of nerves can be altered during sensitization processes. So there's evidence for it, but as far as from a biomechanical perspective, biomechanical contributors, there's not a lot on it. So take what I'm saying as um, theory. You don't have to necessarily believe it or adhere to it. It's just more to present you with different perspectives. So the main thing that I've seen with a lot of neural tension is going to be excessive upper trap activation during upper limb movement. And this is kind of common to what we see. We see our patients with rows or even overhead movements, and they've got excessive upper trap activation. So typically what we interpret this as is the upper trap is overactive, therefore it's probably tight and we need to stretch it. So when I palpate the shoulder blades of these patients, usually on the side of the neural tension, they're going to have scapular depression. The left side or the right side, whichever side's involved, is going to be lower than the uninvolved side. So typically this gets dicey because you'll see that the hand dominant side is typically attributed to being the lower side. I can't necessarily say that I see that in practice. It, it does vary. There is some variability. But the one consistent pattern that I found is that if someone does have what I suspect to be neural tension, they're, they are going to be more depressed on that side. And again, this could be my own personal bias from when I'm palpating it. Maybe that's what I'm wanting to look for. But what I have noticed is when I see this pattern, I will usually tape the scapula into some sort of scapular elevation to make the inferior angle of the scapula symmetrical to the contralateral side. And this will usually provide some relief from the upper trap pain that they have in addition to some of the neural tension symptoms like the paresthesia in their arm. And the theory behind this is that the upper trap is overactive throughout upper extremity movement. So this is going to be your individuals that work in retail and they're folding clothes and putting clothes overhead or someone who's typing a lot on their computer but doesn't have arm support. So their upper trap is keeping their, their scapula elevated. So typically what I think is occurring here is their upper trap's overactive, it fatigues, and then against gravity, it kind of gives up and it creates an overlengthened position, which creates myofascial pain. So it creates a sensation of almost like you want to stretch and you stretch it and it feels tight and it pulls and then you come back and you don't really get that relief. It's because the muscles overlengthened. So what you want to do is create some shortening, some approximation to get people out of pain via that scapular elevation technique, and then incorporate some postural strengthening to improve the link tension relationship of the mid trap, low trap, improve contributions from the mid trap, low trap, and decrease the reliance on the upper trap during these movements. Mike, what's your opinion on this? I know this is completely theory and anecdotal, but I got to say, I see it in a decent chunk of my neck patients, and they do get good relief with, with this approach. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, I've used that approach from from time to time. I think you kind of touched on potentially like taping the upper trap. I think that's a good thing to at least experiment with and see if they get some symptomatic relief. And if they do, then 
you know you're potentially on a a good path and potentially trying to call on everything else i think one thing to do is we always think about you know stretching the upper trap or lessening the activation of the upper trap i think one thing you can do is even just strengthen the upper trap a little bit a lot of people just don't work out ever and so if you can build a little bit of resilience in that upper trap musculature, they might get a little bit of benefit from that. So, but yeah, I think you're, you're perfectly right with everything you said. Yeah, that, that's a good point um, that you mentioned strengthening the upper trap, just because uh, a lot of clinicians will shy away from strengthening it because they believe it's, it's overactive already. And why would you strengthen something that's overactive? But I would say in pain modulation, you get them out of pain. Once they're kind of back at baseline, they're feeling good start to build some resiliency in that muscle. That's that's a great point. And then as far as using nerve glides, you always want to do your nerve tension positions during your evaluation. That's going to help you really roll in or rule out any involvement. But one thing that I will say is that if it's a nerve root impingement, I will shy away from those neural tension positions just because I know it's going to really make them angry and flare them up. So my goal during an evaluation is to do as little as possible, but to get the most information I don't want to flare them up because my goal at the end of the day is to get them relief and have them feel good when they walk out of the clinic. So if I make that nerve a little angry, no matter what manual therapy or exercises I include, they're just going to be flared up. So I never want to flare up a patient during my eval. I just want to get as much information as I can without without getting them too too painful. So if I know something's going to flare someone up and I'm pretty confident that it's a nerve root impingement, I kind of just hold on it for a different day. And again, I think including nerve glides, slides, tensioners into your treatment as that irritability goes down to build resiliency and that mechanosensitivity to stretch through the nerve is going to be important. It's just like any other muscle, you want to build resiliency through that nerve to stretch. The one thing I do want to talk about is nerve glides versus slides and tensioners. Mike, what do you typically use in treatment? Do you have a preference of a glide versus a slide versus a tensioner? Do you use any nerve tension? What's what's your typical treatment flow look like? I mean, I use it a, a little bit. Um, I, I've kind of fallen out of working with that population where I saw it a little bit more, so I haven't been using it as much. So, I mean, we all kind of know our, our nerve kind of glides and slides and where you're kind of tensioning on both sides or kind of slack and putting slack on one side and, and tensing the other. And your kind of sliders uh, tend to be a lot less invasive and tolerated, not really invasive, but tolerated better because you're not putting full tension on the nerve. So I would tend to start there. And then for me, the the tensioner is essentially just like a stretch. That, that's kind of where like, for, for me, a lot of like the, you know, nerve tension stuff and things like that, I don't use as much because I haven't really seen much like symptomatic relief with it. And so once they're kind of out of the, out of, out of that kind of irritable symptom phase, I tend to just do like, you know, some simple stretching or just like exercises that get them into the range of motion that they need to be getting into and, and target it that way. If it's something where it's like a specific nerve root that I think is involved. So if you look at your kind of like diagnostic criteria for like radiculopathy from in, in like the cervical spine, that they include some upper limb tension testing uh, within that. And my theory is that if you have a nerve root that's involved and you tension a nerve that comes from that nerve root, then yeah, there's likely going to produce some symptoms. So I'll tend to work more, more proximally there, maybe go after the joint with, within the spine and kind of go from there. Um, but as far as like targeted nerve glides, I don't tend to use them as much. Maybe I should use them more. Um, if I do, it's normally just kind of that slider to kind of desensitize things a little bit. 
Right. So um, you brought up a good point there about targeting the segments with the peripheral nerve involvement. So I have seen clinicians use like thrust mobilization to a specified targeted segment to potentially cause some inhibition of irritability of the peripheral nerve with the nerve root that innervates it. There is not evidence for it. It's just something I've seen clinicians use with, I'd say moderate results. I wouldn't say great, but I wouldn't say bad. You did bring up another point about using nerve glides or slides or tensioners for pain modulation. I think this is one of the most challenging interventions because you don't really get that immediate bang for your buck. It's almost like exercise for the muscles. You know, you don't really see the benefit until a week later, two weeks later, because you have to go through that stress repair process, stress rest repair process. So basically what you're doing is you're creating tension on the nerve. You're exposing it to an uncomfortable stimulus. It's actually going to increase their symptoms in the short term. That's why it's very important that you dose it carefully. I typically emphasize with my patients, only do the prescribed amount. Don't do them every day, every other day. Allow your body to recover from that that load on the nerve and then we'll progress in volume and intensity, which is going to be the challenge of the actual nerve glide, which we'll discuss in a sec. But the dosing is very important and they have to go that, that stress rest repair process to actually build resiliency through the nerve. So it, you're right. You don't really get that bang for your buck in the, in the first visit and it requires a lot of patient and precise dosing. As far as the difficulty of the nerve glides, you're going to just try to look at what is actually occurring at the nerve. So you have the nerve that travels within a sheath. That's going to be your epineurium. And what they say is that that nerve is not moving through that epineurium, which is a fibrous connective tissue, almost think like a fiber optic cable. Your nerves are running within that cable. Then that's what's going to create those restrictions at the nerve or that irritability. Whether that's true or not, I mean, evidence is still learning a lot about neural tension. But as far as your interventions... Your sliders are going to be when you're moving that nerve proximally and distally. So if proximally you're shortening the nerve and then distally you're lengthening it, and then you'll alternate with proximal lengthening and distal shortening, that's going to be your nerve just sliding. Now your glide is going to be proximally, you're static, so your neck would be in a neutral position, and then you're moving that nerve through the upper arm motion. And that's going to be just movement occurring at one end. And then your tensioner is going to be creating elongation at both ends. So you're going to be creating tension proximally and tension distally. And I usually don't do holds. I go to where they feel it and they back right off. So your tensioner is going to be your most intense because you're tensioning the nerve at two positions. Your slides, your sliders are going to be the least intense because you're never really tensioning the nerve. It's, it's going to be more shortening at one end, lengthening at the other end. And then your glides are going to be somewhere in the middle because one end is neutral while the other end is being put into tension. I know that's a lot. You might have to listen to that one and play it back if it's not a concept that you're familiar with. Those are definitely very confusing at first. And um, I think they're very beneficial as a progression, though, if, if you feel like that neural sensitivity is a component. So we'll wrap up here, Mike. We'll do a little discussion on posture just because I feel like can't talk about the neck and uh, the upper back without talking about posture. We kind of discussed it in in season one, episode one. Do you want to say something, Mike? Yeah. Uh, before we move on, so you talked about like the importance of dosing the like nerve kind of glides, tension, whatever, whatever they're doing for their home program uh, being very important. What, what's your like go-to dose? I usually start with two sets of eight okay. and then I will ramp up in 
reps of two. So usually I go with a lower dose, just like I do with my exercise to see how they respond, just because I rather underdose and overdose and flare someone up. And then you can always build upon that. And the last thing I'll touch on here, since you kind of sparked my thought here, if you suspect your patient has neural tension, you really want to consider that in your exercise prescription. So if they have neural tension, you're doing some postural state strengthening. If they're doing a prone T, you really want to look at the height of where they're lifting their arm. If they're going into, you know, abduction past their plane of their body, it could be potentially putting themselves in a median nerve tension position. If they're doing uh, tricep dips, for example, with shoulder extension and then doing that elbow flexion extension motion, again, you're going to be tensioning that brachial plexus through the anterior portion of the humeral head there. So always important to consider the positioning of your exercises, especially early on when someone is irritable and has nerve tension contributions. Cool. And then we'll talk about posture. We, we talked about this in season one, episode one, or episode two, actually, I believe, when we talked about the role of movement in postural analysis. So the important thing to remember with posture that I always talk about is postural variability. Typically, you think of posture as bad or good. And I think it doesn't really exist that way. I think there's a posture that's the most common for a static stress overload that's going to be your forward head, rounded shoulders. And that's just the way the world works. Everything is in front of us, our computer, our devices. We're working with our hands, so it tends to pull everything forward. So I don't think this is a bad posture. I just think it's the most common because it's the way our world works. So if you were to you know, be in retraction and have your neck in a good position and hold that for, let's say, five hours, you're going to have a static stress overload of different structures and just have pain in different places. So what you always have to remember is your load variability. And when it comes to posture, that's a static stress overload. So what I try to educate patients on is introducing cyclic loading. So I usually incorporate like a scap retractor, a chin tuck throughout the day and prolonged static loading activities, whether working at a computer, whatever it might be, and really talking to them about using this not to create a perfect posture, but to add variability to your posture. I always talk about postural and movement variability to change loading patterns. I think that's, uh, I mean, that's exactly how I tend to approach it. I don't think that any posture is inherently a bad posture. I think it's just, yeah, like exactly, exactly what you said, no matter what position we're in, if we're in that position for six hours straight, it's going to hurt. So creating the, the best situation for a patient to be able to vary the position that they're in. And sometimes when people are fired up, certain postures are going to be painful for them. So figuring out a way to get out of those postures um, and create some symptomatic relief throughout their day, I think is important. Right. And then we'll conclude this episode just kind of recapping and, and discussing how a lot of the classifications that we talked about aren't complete categories for your entire treatment. This is going to be mainly for your pain modulation phase. So once the patient is out of that phase where their pain's irritable, your treatment is going to evolve and look completely different in phase two. And that's going to be the reason we didn't talk about it as much is because that's going to be more of your hodgepodge, general strengthening, global strengthening, mimicking functional patterns, building resiliency to activity. So we don't want you to think that this is what we do for these patients and that's what their plan of care looks like the entire time. It's more of this is what we do for certain subgroups to get them out of pain. But once they are out of pain and they're in that phase two or three, their programs are really going to be dependent on what their functional goals are and what their uh, strength impairments are, strength deficits are. Mike, any final thoughts? No, I think that we uh, we hit on pretty much everything. I think uh, make sure that you're using your manual therapy in the cervical spine. Uh, I think the the neck tends to be of any body part that we work with. I, th I think the, the neck seems to respond best to hands-on treatment. Uh, and I think it also kind of builds that level of trust with your patient when you're willing to get in there and, and touch their neck. It tends to be 
a, a scary body part for people when they have neck pain, they don't know what to do because they, they picture everything as kind of dangerous for that area. So you showing confidence that you're willing to get in there, put your hands on them, get some symptomatic relief early on. I think, I think it's really important for kind of building trust with these patients as well. Yeah. And, um, I think early on too, we discussed some, uh, deep neck flexor activation exercise. I think it's, that's huge. I know I'm really big on functional movements and building resiliency and global muscle activation, but this is one population where I really see the benefit of neuromuscular activation of the deep neck flexors. Typically, um, I'll have a mobility patient. I get their full mobility back after a few visits of manual therapy I go in, I do my joint mobility assessment. They really don't have any deficits or I don't feel any hypomobility, but their range of motion is still limited. Specifically, I see this with rotation a lot. So typically what I'll do is I'll have them stand against a wall with like a towel or a ball behind their head. I'll have them gradually engage a chin tuck and then maintain that chin tuck as they do active rotation very slowly to the side of the deficit. And what I've noticed is when they maintain that chin tuck, they're actually able to get that full range, which is going to point me more to a motor control deficit versus a mobility deficit. And once they do about two sets of 10 of these, I tell them just do the motion without even thinking about it. And just getting that muscle firing, reintroducing that motor pattern kind of gets it moving again and they get that full range after the exercise. So again, that's anecdotal. There's really no evidence to back that up. And it's, it's challenging just because you have to really find that specific subgroup of patients that responds to that and test it. But again, we just want to provide you with all the different perspectives. We don't ever want you to live in absolutes. It's just another thing to consider when you feel kind of stuck. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us for season two, episode two of So As We Are Saying. We really appreciate you guys listening in. If you're enjoying our content, please leave a five-star review and we will see you next week for all things low back. Have a good one, guys.